0: Welcome to Moving the Needle, the world of work is changing. As we all know, people no longer get a job in their early 20s and stay with the same organization or company until they retire. We also know that industries that supported our economy for many years, such as manufacturing, have changed radically. There are digital platforms such as Uber and Lyft, which have made the gig economy more and more prominent. There are, of course, some positives to the gig work, but there are also downsides because these jobs are precarious and temporary and often lack benefits and pensions. And finally, the pandemic has changed how we work. More and more are working from home. But what about those who have to travel and don't have the choices that we do? Absolutely, Senator.
1: These are massive questions for policymakers and governments. How do we reorganize unemployment benefits to fit this new reality? What rights do workers in the gig economy actually have? Is it time for some form of basic income that I know you and others have, have suggested it is? These are just some of the questions that we asked Pedro Baratta, an expert on the future of work. Let's get to the interview.
0: Today's podcast is going to be a really interesting one and really timely because we're talking about the future of work. Already our work looks different from what it did eight or nine months ago uh, and I'm pretty sure that this evolution of change and disruption is going to continue. There's no one better than our guest uh, today to inform us about what the future of work may look like. He is Pedro Barata, who is the executive director of an organization called the Futures. Um, which is and it's an organization. We'll ask Pedro more about this uh, or uh, about this uh, new organization. I know Pedro well from my work in Toronto when he used to be with the Atkinson Foundation and then with the United Way, we've worked together. Uh, we've mostly worked together. Sometimes our opinions have varied and sometimes deferred, but that makes life interesting. Welcome, Pedro.
2: Uh, it's a real honor to be here Uh, it's always an honor to be with you senator you're you're a real role model for all canadians but as a first generation canadian i I, uh, i i really look up to how hard you work to make this country work for everybody so thank you for this opportunity and invitation
0: so let's let's start with the million dollar question the future skills center sounds something like it's ephemeral, it's out there, it's somewhere out there in the constellation like Spock and Star Wars, what is it? What is it that you do?
2: It's actually much more applied and uh, and it's very much grounded in challenges that we were facing before the pandemic and that we're all looking at now as pretty uh, central to the recovery. And I think you can describe our mandate really as three pillars. Pillar number one, is we want to anticipate how the labor market's changing and what that means for skills. What is it that Canadians need to know and what skills do they need in order to navigate this fast changing economy? So that's one. Number two, it's one thing to know what skills are necessary, but we do need to make sure that we are equipping Canadians and providing lots of access points for a growing number of Canadians who are going to be facing this disruption. Um, And so that kind of experimentation, prototyping, is something that we are doing in collaboration with what we call the skills development ecosystem. And that includes employers, labor unions, post-secondary education institutions, community-based organizations, local governments and other policymakers. And together, we have to figure out how is it that we stretch outside of the current skills delivery uh, approach to uh, really confront emerging challenges and provide new uh, ways to equip Canadians with skills. And the third pillar was that if we do all of these things well, so what? The point is that we wanna create receptor capacity so that the, the practices around what we learn, what we evaluate, and there is a program of rigorous evaluation in, in how we're prototyping. What we learn about what works has to be something that isn't just uh, you know sitting on a, on a proverbial digital bookshelf. It's something that's adopted across the ecosystem and is seen as uh, something that is positive and possible to do. And so the creation of platforms like communities of practice, the work with policymakers to ensure that the right incentives are there for people to adopt the right kinds of of practices, uh, the work to just build networks so that uh, this experimentation, this future orientation is not just something that we hold in our center, but something that is owned by the entire ecosystem. Uh, That is really important in terms of our knowledge mobilization strategy.
0: Okay. a simple minded person like me, uh, I think I, I, I get that you do research, you do evidence, you do experimentation. Do you do evaluation? Uh, you do dis- you do some disruption, but basically you're working across all the stakeholders in the community, including employers and labor unions, to get them to adopt whatever promising or best practices appear. Is Is that my? uh plebeian translation is uh always, that
2: correct? always an amazing communicator and synthesizer and uh and I, I and your point around really working with the entire ecosystem is really important to us it's really important to me one of my principles around our work is that we want to make sure that innovation is not an elite sport we don't want you know just the top 5 or 10% of organizations that are already ahead that already have the capacity that already have the big ideas that already have the capital social capital to be the ones who are way out ahead of everybody else and leave everybody else sort of behind we, we have to make sure that whatever the innovation agenda is around skills development that is owned by as much of the ecosystem as possible so that we're all moving forward starting from the place where we start
0: okay we, we make i may come back to the to a question around social capital later if we have time but let's stick to the future we are living in a present some of us are having a hard time imagining a future, but there will be a future. Uh, The pandemic has impacted us. Can you give me a sense how the pandemic has shifted your understanding of what the future of work may look like in the short term and the long term?
2: So, I mean, uh, all of us are experiencing this, but all of us are experiencing it differently. Um, Too often in these conversations, you know, we end up talking about, uh, frankly, people like us, right? People who are um, on the privileged side, I would say, uh, of the labor market. And we tend to think about, you know, we're moving to a hybrid model where we're going to have more of a balance between, you know, the bricks and mortar in the office and more digital work. Uh, we're going to have both uh, employers are going to have more access to a, a bigger talent pool that they can, you know, uh, deal with uh, remotely uh, and also uh, workers are going to have more access to job opportunities because uh, of, of the remote uh, of remote teams. Certainly, I think that uh, in we're already seeing this whatever resistance there was to adopting more digital tools to help with our work, even things like teams or zoom or what have you. Uh, all of these are quickly becoming just a regular part of how we do our jobs. So in the short term, um, you know, uh, w- 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 the future is now in terms of what we're experiencing and uh, and just the changes that we're going through. More broadly, um, I think that w- uh, the general observation is that we're going to see an acceleration of many of the trends that we were anticipating were coming down the pike anyway. Um, so adoption of technology and emphasis on innovation, um, we're now seeing that any kind of resistance or uh, you know a, a, a my- mysterious thinking about the role of AI or automation or robotics, uh, that all of a sudden we're seeing more and more sectors, more and more employers who perhaps mm-hmm. you know were comfortable in the quarter to quarter success of their bottom line, all of a sudden shifting to say, oh my goodness, we're in a totally different game here. We have to actually adopt and learn about these things. It's a great opportunity. Um, uh, I also think that, and we're seeing this uh, from, um, uh, from CEOs of large corporations, more and more of an emphasis, not just on te- you know, technological skills and digital skills, which we anticipate, and of course, um, uh, you know uh, problem-solving skills, but more and more of an emphasis on social and emotional skills in terms of the future of work, um, where uh, the the talent is the number one issue uh, for employers. It's the number one issue for competitiveness right now, according to the Business Council CEO survey. And embedded in that is an understanding that the skills that are gonna win the day um, for a workforce are things like adaptability, a passion for lifelong learning, being able to work in teams and collaboration and global competencies, and why are these, um, which we which used to be called soft skills, all of a sudden being seen as absolutely crucial? Because change in the workplace means that you need people who are going to be adaptable, not just in, in terms of changing their own role, but in being adaptable in terms of changing how, in their job, you're going to adopt new technologies, innovate, keep up with changing trends and be able to work in an environment where you're not going to be working with people just like you or even people who are face-to-face in a much more dynamic environment where uh, the the global competencies and being able to work in a climate of diversity um, will be uh, uh, really the trump card in terms of success for the future. Uh, Lots of other things, uh, I think, uh, um, both good and bad. Uh, I think issues around organizational and workplace culture um, are are um, uh, for any HR professional anybody who's uh, who's thinking about um, how is it that you retain and keep people happy in their work and give them a sense of purpose um, zoom and teams um, uh, it's 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 probably confounding a lot of people of yeah. how it is that you move there and of course uh, senator as we know um, uh, I think the future of work uh, unless uh, we put a a real focus on it is going to magnify uh, the inequities uh, that were already there when we first um, when we first entered the pandemic. Um, we look at the sectors that are being impacted: retail, hospitality. Think about cashiers. Think about food processing. These are all sectors disproportionately that are gendered, that are racialized, that employ newcomers and younger people. Yeah. Yeah. That's where the hits are going to come, and um, and we're also going to see pressures on business models. The recovery is going to mean that employers, corporations, um, they're going to be coming into this with very thin margins and very thin bottom lines, which is going to drive, uh, you know, uh, pressure on restructuring. Restructuring means you uh, you offload some of your duties yeah. to non-standard work, and I know that that's a conversation we'll get to today. So, to. lots, lots lot. happening in a yeah. very short and compressed period of time. So
0: uh, here's an observation. There's lots happening, as you say, and you're sort of looking at it through uh, the lens of mobilizing knowledge, evidence, action. Part of the action may actually lead to legislation. So remember when you are so far uh, to submit uh, uh, policy ideas, legislative uh, changes, because this is what senators do uh, and Parliamentarian. So that's an opportunity that should not be missed. Let me shift to women. Uh, we know and you know that women have been really hardly hit. Hard, hard, hard hit by by this pandemic. Uh, they have to many have to continue to work from home whilst they look after their children. Uh, there has been no daycare or they are not able or do not feel comfortable uh, sending their children into into dangerous spots, schools, for instance, or daycares, that's a personal decision they make. And so they are cu- carrying, you know, uh, three times the workload um, that they used to. If you have two kids, you. You're, and they're at home, and they're going to school at home. Uh, that requires supervision. It just doesn't happen by itself. And you know, Armin Yalnizian has called for a she recovery. That there will be no recovery without a she recovery. Do you see uh, points of light? Let me say, as we emerge from the pandemic into a tentative recovery. I'm feeling more hopeful about that now. But do you see a point points of light as it, as, as we can think about women going back to work with a different understanding of their workload, maybe different supports, different structures? I would just like you to weigh in on that
2: uh no recovery without a recovery and no recovery without childcare. said at heart Yes okay. incomparable in or I mean Yalnizian, um and uh, and th- and thanks thanks for her leadership and for really framing this challenge um I guess the answer the answer around this question is it, it really is It depends on um, on what we decide to do to address an issue which is right in front of us. I experience it every day. Uh, i you know i'm on uh, these uh, these video tools on a daily basis and and you see it my you know um my colleagues who are women are disproportionately um bearing the load of uh of child rearing of parenting of um and all the pressures that that brings uh just in terms of you know managing your career managing your job at the same time that you continue to provide you know a, a loving meaningful experience for your kids that's uh, disproportionately, you're you're seeing it right there on your screen on a daily basis as kids uh, come into come into the picture, um, and I think uh, this uh, this is what has really brought a a renewed focus on a conversation about not just child care, but early learning and child care uh, on the policy domain. And I was very heartened that in the throne speech, the government chose to use more words rather than fewer words. describe the challenge Uh, because it's not simply a place to park your kids it's a place of quality right Uh, that provides both the the peace of mind um the quality experience for the child um and uh and also a good workplace for the very valuable er uh, early childhood education uh workers um so that conversation I see it very much on the radar screen whenever I hear Minister Hussein speak, whenever I hear the Prime Minister speak. I know that, um, you know, uh, um, very smart and committed people who've been working on this for decades, on this policy file for decades, are mobilized. They're cautiously optimistic. They know that this is not easy, especially in a federated uh, model. Uh, But, you know, we've seen this before. Um, You know, um, Minister Dryden, uh, way back in the the mid-2000s, I think that the principles at the time were called the Quad principles, uh, that uh, that did lead to a potential deal across the country, and and uh, and would have been a leap forward. Unfortunately, those didn't come to pass, but we have another opportunity here, and um, and and um, now is the time for us to move forward on it. I would also say that um, I am very hopeful um, that after many many years of. Um, door of ei reform and modernization yes mm-hmm.
0: um,
2: we've recognized that um, what we did in terms of shoring up people's incomes during the pandemic was inspired and valiant and made a huge difference in terms of that program but that's not a sustainable approach right that was a an immediate response emergency response that worked serb was a uh, an amazing program in catching canadians at the at the most at the most dangerous of times um ei can be that too it hasn't been that and it hasn't been that particularly for women and racialized workers and newcomers and those who have not qualified um, and that has meant both a, sh- uh, a shortfall on income but also no access to training programs and no access to the kind of return to the labor market which is the part two which I'm really focused on these days. Um, we get to open the door uh, on on uh, on this gate that has been shut for way too long, despite some amazing work uh, that has been done uh, to point to point away to, to reforms. So I am hopeful. I am hopeful. Um, and uh, but we have to keep working hard and take advantage of this opportunity.
1: Well, it's it's really interesting because, and I think this is good to sort of maybe broaden some of the other things that are coming, you know, that the pandemic has exposed, but also have been a part of, you know, the emerging workforce and that's, you know, the gig economy in particular and, and, you know, people taking temporary jobs or even what what is known as precarious work, right? So, so not full time necessarily, often having to have multiple jobs, uh, lack of benefits, lack of pensions. Uh, those are all things that sort of define what uh, precarious work is and sort of what the is is kind of about. Um, you know, obviously, uh, you know, during the pandemic and we were talking about women, you know, working in, you know, essentially in essential jobs, you know, there was this push to, to, to increase their salaries, but how long will that last? You know, will benefits follow all that? Um, so, You know, as these precarious sort of employment situations continue to be prevalent in Canada and pretty much around the world, and as the gig economy, you know, continues to be, uh, you know, growing in the sense of using the digital space of uh, Uber and Lyft and all of those sort of things, you know, what is the policy responses that are necessary from government uh, to be able to deal with this in Canada, but maybe even you know broader in in, in, the war, in various countries, you know to be able to deal with these changing dynamics. You did mention EI to a certain degree, but it'd be nice to hear you know some more uh, some more on the the policy prescriptions that are necessary.
2: Uh, uh, yeah, it's, uh, again, an emerging challenge, which is not new, but it is only going to in- intensify. And, and let's be clear, there's nothing wrong with choice. And and more and more Canadians are choosing careers that you know don't rely on the, the traditional nine to five or whatever that looks like these days. Um, and I, I personally know many consultants who, who love their more flexible jobs and who love the rush and who love the flexibility. Um, But there's a huge difference between choosing a flexible career path and being trapped in precarious jobs. And I think one of the things that uh, unfortunately we've done is is really conflated careers and jobs, um, and and let slip the fact that a job these days, increasingly is no longer a pathway out of poverty. And um, unfortunately, many of the gig workers and many of the non-standard workers, an increasing percentage of the labor market, are stuck in jobs that trap them in poverty. And so I think um, uh, uh, the solution to poverty, the solution to uh, to jobs that are pathways out of poverty, is not a um, is not a padlock. It's it's a combination lock. And there's no one uh, one all, uh, no one-size solution. I'd say um, again, EI reform, I think, is um, really has to be our focus I would say uh, I would even go further and say between EI reform between child care and early learning and child care and that agenda between driving forward some of the housing investments and reforms that are on the government's to-do list that already have significant dollars behind them and if implemented well things like housing benefits can actually shore up incomes of those who may be in lower paid works uh, in lower paid jobs or uh, not in full time work i think there's a whole measure of income security that needs to be uh, or economic security i should say that that could be stitched together just based on conversations we're having right now again housing strategy early learning and child care ei reform what those get you is a baseline of, uh, of economic security that allows those who are um, starting out, who are experiencing shifts in their jobs, um, who you know may be uh, uh, not in their f- in in their favorite position right now, but are looking to move up. Those are the foundation. If you add an element of sc- educational opportunities and opportunities for growth to that then you're providing not just a foundation um, of, of safety, you're also providing, um, you know, ladders, right? Um, to, to new opportunities and new careers. And right now, um, the, the challenge with precarious employment is twofold when it comes to that ladder. One, um, only one in two Canadians have access to workplace-based training. We did a survey within Veronix during the pandemic with 5,000 Canadians that revealed that in fact, those Canadians who are privileged enough to have access to workplace-based training, love it. They think it's great. It helps them with their careers. Problem is, it's the non-standard workers, who the gig workers, who have less access to exactly the ladder they need. Secondly, they also usually for, don't qualify for employment insurance. And without qualification for employment insurance, you also can access training resources that are available. You can't pay for them on your own, because your job doesn't allow you to do that. So you're trapped. So I am thinking about the economic security floor around childcare, housing and income supports and the ladder around expanded opportunities for skills. I think is the combination lock um, that can really counter some of the worst effects of precarious employment that we're seeing. And Paul, I don't wanna take away from the importance of employment standards of regulation and of ensuring that there's a legislative and enforcement agenda around this. It's very important. Um, but I wanted to make sure we um, uh, we also focused on uh, on the on the policy side of that.
0: So since you brought up economic support measures, uh, let's talk about universal basic income. There are many who argue, including me. I've, I'm a I'm a fan of uh, redistributing our wealth in Canada in a way that gives everybody a reasonable floor with dignity that allows them to uh, embrace the opportunities that you've talked about without uh, being, um, being uh, you know, uh, s- worried about their future. But I've also heard you talk about the foundational support and I think this audience will get that you really believe that the foundation public supports of childcare, housing, and EI reform are the foundations for the future. How does this sit side by side? Does it sit side by side with universal basic income, or are they two contradictory and conflicting approaches?
2: I, 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 think, we're all, um, I think we're all on the same principle which is that we should do everything that we can to ensure that there's a basic standard of living under which no Canadian falls. And that, um, and that we should ensure that every Canadian is, um, is lifted out of poverty and that we're preventing um, that poverty from happening. Um, I, uh, I wear the scars, as you know, Senator, of more than 20 years of work on the social assistance reform file. And um, I know that income is critical. But the moment that you start to talk about income, you have to start talking about coverage. You have to start talking about how much. Inevitably, um, the differential impacts and experiences of those who fall into poverty come into play because um, we're gonna need to think about childcare. We're gonna need to think about housing needs as well. We're gonna have to think about access to mental health. And ultimately, income alone without um, without addressing some of those uh, multiple barriers and without also looking at training and how is it that we extend the opportunity. I think income is a, uh, a necessary but not sufficient condition to really help people actualize themselves and get to where they need to get to. So I think we're all having the same conversation. Right. Um, it's just a matter of how we actually get there. And um, uh, uh, I, I, I am, I hope that we are laser focused on the immense opportunities that we have right now to cement decades of work and thinking on a quality childcare a pan-Canadian quality childcare program and on taking all of those reports on EI reform that have that have gathered inches of dust dusting well, those off and bringing some solutions forward I-
0: all I will say is from your lips to God's ears. But I think we're going to be having this, this discussion on childcare on uh, for a great uh, with with great interest on the Hill. Let's talk about the other pandemic. Uh, again, uh, you and I have both worked on the edges or in the mainstream of the anti-racism uh, movement. All of a sudden, because of uh, the context and the narrative, it's now become center stage for for many. Uh, I'd like to ask you, since you're doing the research on the future of work and the barriers that people face, what does your research tell you about how racism impacts people's entry into work, uh, their opportunities for laddering up? I like that word, it's very visual. Um, And and if you have any projects underway uh, at the Future Skills Centre, uh, to to experiment, as you said, with new approaches to deal with old wicked problems.
2: Uh, yeah, this is a uh, um, born out of uh, born out of this pandemic and born out of tragic events uh, that have continued. This is a conversation um, that is obviously really critical and uh, that um, uh, finally seems to be sticking to the mainstream and is leading to some tangible action. Um, so um let me start by talking um about uh, our environic survey where uh, we went out during the pandemic spoke with many canadians um i was thinking uh, senator when you were mentioning the importance of uh legislation whenever we think about action mm-hmm. <laughs> i was thinking uh, back to uh, something that was very heartening about that survey which was that um even though canadians we ran the survey in march april um, a time of a lot of uncertainty, and even though Canadians were feeling very uncertain and very insecure, uh, they also reported that they actually felt somewhat optimistic because, primarily, they trusted that government would be there for them. Uh, which I found to be a um, a remarkable uh, statement by the majority of the Canadians we uh, we surveyed, because that was before Serb even happened, um, and uh, and uh, and quite telling that not only were canadians expecting that governments were going to step up governments did step up and i think that that was important but you know within the broader average there are also always the importance of disaggregation and when it came to uh, canadians who are racialized who were surveyed and women as well and younger people and newcomers that degree of optimism and that degree of sort of a thread or, or a way forward not there as much, right? So that insecurity that came into the pandemic is certainly magnified. And look, um, uh, sectors like uh, retail, sectors like hospitality that disproportionately employ racialized workers and younger workers, those are going to be the sectors that are going to be most, uh, most severely hit by automation, right? Um, so if you know that this is uh, that this is what's on deck for you, of course you're going to be feeling very nervous. And we have to confront that reality that some of the changes that are going to be coming down the line are changes that are going to disproportionately impact racialized populations. So uh, in terms of responses, at our center um, we put. Um, the, um, um, we put issues around diversity, equity, inclusion at the centre. Uh, In fact, our mandate um, uh, requires us and pushes us to ensure that at least 50% of our efforts are focused on underrepresented groups and uh, in all of our work to date, we currently have over 50 partnerships across Canada. Um, I would say uh, at last count, over 80% of our projects are dealing with uh, populations that include uh, Indigenous Canadians, racialized Canadians, women, people with disabilities, uh, many people facing barriers, and the lesson um, the the lesson that we are taking is um, is a lesson that <laughs> that is not new, which is that when it comes to skills development, um, we have to we have to uh, we have to understand that not everybody's starting from the same place. We we talked about social capital earlier. Uh, we talked about historical barriers. People face discrimination all throughout their lives. Of course, the solution is not going to be just a really good training program. If your housing is not up to par, if you are facing issues around trauma, um, if you're facing issues around mental health, um, uh, all because of uh, what racism has done in your life. And the notion of uh, wraparound supports and ensuring that not only are we doing the technical training, but we're also uh, looking at other facets of your life that because of historical reasons are standing in the way of you moving forward. Those are really important in program design. And the flip side of that is that um, good programs lead to great outcomes for, um, for Canadians who are racialized. The challenge is that once you've got all the skills and all the confidence and all the mentoring and all of that, you have to go into a workplace and there's still a lot of racism in workplaces in Canada. And the best programs that we've seen, programs like NPower that are uh, taking on, uh, not just you know a couple of handfuls of uh, of young racialized uh, people and putting them through a program to train them for tech careers. It's not just about the training uh, or the, the hard skills and the mentoring. It's also about working directly with employers. With employers, right? yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that part is really key because we can create all of the perfect little cogs that we want, <laughs> but uh, the moment that they arrive at a workplace, that, uh, that anti-racism needs to be there. Um, uh, and you know, we're seeing this happen in even places like Kingston where um, uh, the city of Kingston surveyed employers in, uh, in that region and found that only one third of employers had any kind of diversity and inclusion strategy. And so what they said was, well, this is not going to work. Uh, increasingly, we have a racialized population. Uh, it's, um, it, that's not going to stop. How is it that we actually create tools, create capacity to engage employers and equip them with tools around organizational culture, policies, employee recruitment, employee retention, and a pipeline of qualified um, uh, uh, workers or job applicants? can actually diversify not only diversify the workforce but be welcomed and seen for their value and um, this is this is a conversation that needs to uh enter every part of canada and we're seeing a lot of projects that are breaking interesting and new ground on this yeah I, i
0: i really like that example because it's at the local level where all of these things are experienced most viscerally or most beautifully as as the word may be uh do you have any plans to test and evaluate this uh, workplace inclusion charter and possibly work with cities across Canada, possibly with the FCM. You know, I'm just sort of thinking that good ideas uh, have long legs Um, and, and, you know, your institute could give this good idea really long legs.
2: Well, Senator, you you kind of wrote the playbook on this uh, when you were at the Maitre Foundation with Toronto Region Employment and Immigration Council, which was, of course, I believe incubated at Maitre, and was a program that was very successful and continues to be so in the GTA and beyond and was scaled. And uh, in many ways, we're trying to write a piece out of your playbook as well, not just with this program, but with others. Um, Anybody who uh, uh, chooses to write alongside with us uh, has to sign up for um opening up the hood around evaluation and evidence generation but the return on investment of that kind of vulnerability which is hard right for organizations no you know no everybody wants to learn until you know um, we start to pick at the things that are not working but the return on investment of engaging in that relationship is that we are prepared to invest in scale and in fact we are um, early in 2021 uh, we're actually ready to scale up um, four of uh, four of the initial programs that we funded in our first year and a half that have proven to be successful that are showing results and that in um, in air- in areas across the country where there's a lot of disruption we can go from a few dozen to hundreds and we start to think about the, the, the breadth of the impact but how we do that in a way that's truly inclusive and not just about creaming and also thinking about what does it mean for other sectors. So very much, Senator, trust me, we've all read the Triac playbook and this is very much uh, our our MO as well.
0: Well, we certainly want to wish you all the best in your replication efforts. Uh, I think Paul may have a final question. There are so many things we could ask you, but we know everyone's time is limited. Go ahead, Paul.
1: Yeah, I was just wanted to, do, and you have mentioned it a, a couple times, sort of about the soft skills that people need, uh, you know, now more than ever, I guess, you know, working in this, uh, in, in a more virtual world, and um, that that we are because of the pandemic, and and we've moved that way, uh, and your re- your organization, you know, created a resource to sort of measure social and emotional skills of their employees, and so I'm wondering what you know what 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 should organizations and companies be doing? Should they, you know, should they be using your resource obviously to be able to measure? And why is that important to measure, you know, these type of skills and their employees? Uh, and then also potentially, I, I, I would think as well as, you know, maybe provide some training if necessary in those those areas, uh, or at least highlight those areas for their employees, you know, so that they can function in those areas better. Uh,
2: great question, uh, great question. Um, And um, I would encourage all of us to no longer refer to these as soft skills. I was was, was, was at a session in uh, in Newfoundland back in the days when you could travel and uh, there was somebody there who works with young people. And she said, stop calling them soft skills. They're actually the power skills. They're gonna help young people um, really be able to make it through all of this change uh, that they're gonna be facing. That's, That's what's at the heart of resilience are these social and emotional skills. I um, give a lot of credit to my, uh, to my consortium partners at Diversity Institute that have done a lot of research on uh, future skills, and I encourage um, anybody who's listening to this podcast to uh, visit our website and the Diversity Institute's uh, website around our Skills Next series done in partnership with Public Policy Forum that has done a, a lot of work uh, on all of the discussions that we've had up until now. And the Conference Board of Canada is our partner who's leading our work on social and emotional skills. The importance of having the Conference Board of Canada be uh, at the front of this conversation is that employers are there. Employers in Corporate Canada, they know that social be at the heart. Importing that is that um, uh, we know that there's been a gap in uh, in in our understanding of this and how we operationalize it. So we've developed a toolkit with Conference Board of Canada that. That, that draws on some of the um, uh, some of the best instruments to measure and define uh, uh, inventory website. This baseline, and also where we grow, that we focus our internal learning strategy, or partner with uh, with external skills development organizations to build on our strengths and address gaps. And unless you have that baseline data, unless you have a map, it's, it's the same thing as saying, how are we doing in terms of digital skills if they're so essential to our future, right? It's a, it's a core, it's becoming a core competency. So measure it. And then what do we actually do? Once we, once we have a baseline um, we, in our toolkit, we, uh, we have a wealth of applied studies on, um, on uh, social and emotional skills, on measurement, development. We draw on emerging work from OECD, around uh, what works in terms of training, in terms of management practices, and in terms of uh, really seeding and driving organizational culture around these issues. Um, because the importance of social and emotional skills is that although we are all uh, uh, catching up to the fact that they're really, really important, um, it's still not one of those things that people um, see as, uh, as being uh, as important as brushing up on my uh, digital skills, or as important as brushing up on reading, writing, right? And and we have to uh, we have to champion these as things that you can learn, work on, and really um, uh, demonstrate as part of your your own personal toolkit.
1: Can I just jump in there just quickly on this one last thing about this? I'm just curious uh, uh, is is about should this also be included in uh, the school system? right you know you know in Ontario you know you essentially have a careers class that everyone is supposed to take um, and and I'm wondering if that that is an area for young people you know f- uh, 14 15 16 years old whether just getting into the workforce if that's an area that uh, you know that 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 should be explored by the education yeah
2: and on how skills um, education within traditional skills development. Um, I think a lot of it comes down to um, uh, not necessarily teaching social and emotional skills on a slide, uh, but embedding it in how you engage your students in learning. So, like, think about it. Collaboration and teamwork and working with people uh, who think and come from places that are different than yours. Teamwork. Resilience, right? Resilience comes, think about it, it comes from uh, the ability to do something, to reflect on it, to have somebody comment on it in a positive and constructive way, and to take that not as a negative criticism that's going to uh, bring you down, but is actually a learning opportunity that you take and where you see that help me grow. Like, it, it takes a pedagogy, right, and a, and a teaching approach to actually create that, loop, that feedback loop that creates opportunities for you to be in listening mode, to welcome that listening, and then to see how it plays in your continued growth, right, in terms of resilience. That will also lead to lifelong learning, right? Um, Anytime that you have a a pedagogical model, which is more centered on you, right, what you love, and teaching you the the core core and the basics, but also ensuring that there's a lot of you in terms of uh, the curriculum. That we're engaging you in that's obviously critical to embracing lifelong learning and learning new things that may not even come from books uh, or computer screens so all of those things i think um, they're embedded in how we learn and we need to get a whole lot better at understanding that this needs to be part of pedagogy and that's a lot of work that we're doing and frankly educators are there too um but it takes resources to do this right (laughs) Uh, the, the educational and, and, and skills development system if it continues or or if if it goes down the path of just creating nice little cogs in a machine, we're gonna miss out on all of this value, which is the, the stuff that's really gonna make a difference.
0: That was fascinating and you know we could forever but I really like the suggestion from your uh, audience, and I think it was Newfoundland that let's stop calling them soft skills. Let's call them power skills, and hopefully we'll see some action on social media around that. You know, I believe changing language shifts ideas, and so maybe we 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 have to uh, engage in some kind of Twitter storm around language around skills. So thank you so much, Pedro. It was fascinating. I could speak to you, as I said forever, but that's not in the in the works. But I do hope that when you are called to the Senate to appear. This as I uh, you will be on the work of the Senate as it pertains to skills in the economy that you will say yes, uh, because we certainly need the evidence and uh, the thought leadership behind what your institute is doing. And to our audience members, I will say we should all thank Pedro for his time with us and his work. And I look forward, audience, to hearing from you as to what you think about my podcast and who you would like to see featured on it. Thank you so much. Until next time.